Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. We're in our fourth message in Galatians in the Free to Live series. In Galatians 1, verses 10 through 24, these are autobiographical uh, passages but Paul is not, this is not the only time that Paul gives autobiographical references. Uh, he does it uh, several times. In fact, in 13 of his writings, he mentions something about his conversion or his Christian experience. And what I want us to look at is what does a testimony look like? In other words, if I've been set apart by the Son, what does that look like? And how do people know it? Because the one thing that Paul knew and he wanted to remind the Galatians of and even the Judaizers of was that he was not the same man. God had radically changed his life. And this change was a change from law to grace. His methods, his motives, his ministry, his purpose, everything about his life had changed. And and there is evidence of this life of faith from a legalist a man who was a graduate, if you will, of the Ivy League school of Judaism, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says in Philippians 3, a Pharisee, a keeper of the law, circumcised of the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, he gives all his credentials. And he says, but God changed me. God changed my life. And and it was the miracle of conversion, that moment when God revealed himself to Paul on the Damascus road. And so I want you to pick up with me in verse 13. We'll back up to verse 11 in a minute. He says, for you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Paul was zealous. He was passionate for traditions, for the traditions of Judaism. But if you just turn to the right a few pages to Philippians chapter 3, I want you to see what he thinks about it now. Philippians chapter 3, and you'll see how Paul describes this radical change. But whatever things were gained to me, verse 7, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul is saying to them in Philippians and in Galatians and in other places, you know my credentials, but I want you to know now that my credential is I've been crucified with Christ. Christ has taken me to the cross. I've seen my sin, and I'm a changed man. Paul met Jesus and never got over it. Now, now let me give you a, a statement that you need to write down. 
If your Jesus is not powerful enough, if your Jesus is not powerful enough to make some immediate changes, then he's not good enough to save you. If Jesus can't change you, he can't save you. That's a quicker way of saying it. If your Jesus is not powerful enough to make some immediate changes, and I know what people say, well, you know, uh, we're in a process, and I know we're in a process. Uh, We don't arrive the minute we uh, get saved. I know we're in a process. But if there's not some immediate change that takes place at salvation, if, if God is not powerful enough to begin changing you, then I don't think he's powerful enough to save you. It is a process. There is growth. There is, but there should be evidence from that moment of conversion. The words that, that Scripture uses for salvation are not gradual words. For instance, they're words like birth. Now, the labor process may be long, but birth happens. I mean, it just happens. It, you, you know, you're in the womb and everything's fine. And then you're out and the doctor's slapping you. I mean, it's a wake-up call. Whoa, what happened? (laughs) Adoption is not a gradual word. You are not adopted and then you go through a process and somebody signs some papers and, and the judge or lawyer or somebody says, you are now adopted. By the way, in the first century when Jesus and Paul used, when Paul uses the word adoption, adoption in the first century meant that you had more rights than the natural born child because the law so protected the adopted child that when you adopted a child, you were legally bound to do more for that child than you did even for your natural born children. That was the law. How about marriage? You know, one minute you're standing there and you're hearing the preacher preach and he's saying all these things. I mean, you bought the dress, you got the tux, you got everything going. Mom and dad are there. Mom's crying. Dad's crying because he's got to pay the bills. You know, the reception's about everything's going on. Everybody's out there going, oh, look, they're just, oh, they're so pretty. Uh." And then all of a sudden the, the preacher says, I now pronounce you man and wife. Before he said that, you weren't. You had the dress, you had the tux, you had everything. But you weren't married until that preacher said, I now pronounce you man and wife. It's an instant. When you walked in the room, you weren't. When you walked out, you are. It changes. Significantly. (laughs) Right? I mean, it, I mean, that's what happens, isn't it? I mean, you, you know, oh, we're going to get married. We're going to get married. Now we're married. It changed in a moment. And so when you talk about change, Christ changes us in a moment, and that change has ongoing effects. And I'm afraid that some people have had experiences, but they've never experienced Christ. It would be like going to a wedding and sitting and watching the couple get married, and going to the reception and eating the cake, and never meeting the bride and groom, personally. You can go to every wedding in town, but not know the bride and groom. You can sit in church. You can learn the songs. You can know when the kiss is coming. You can know when the service is over. You can know all the facts and not know the Father. 
Because it's not about showing up at church. It's about a life-changing moment with Jesus Christ. 1 John 2.19 is in your notes. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Us is the body of believers. And, and, and he's, what he's saying there is that they may have been in the church, but they weren't in the family. Hello? They may have been in the church. Their may, name may be on the church roll, but it's not in the Lamb's book of life. He says they are not really of us. That, that word is actually a textile term, and it means they're not cut from the same bolt of cloth. They're not of the same material as we are. What Paul is saying, they were with us, but they weren't of us because they never came to Christ. Because if a person comes to Christ, they don't quit. The way that you know that you're saved, one of the things Paul, that John says is, I know that I've passed from death unto life. One of the signs is, is that we love the brethren. Not that we used to love the brethren. Not that we used to love to come to church. Not that we used to love to be around God's people. We do now. It, it is a present tense. You know, I, I've been to college games and uh, had to, at times sit in the visitor section where you're surrounded by other people who are in the visitor section in the few measly seats that they give you so that they can humiliate you. And then I've had to sit in sections where I've been surrounded by other fans. You know, I've been cheering for one team and everybody else around me has been cheering for another team. I did not feel at home in those games. When we scored... I didn't feel like jumping up and down and going, yippee-yay-yay. We were at the Yankees-Red Sox game Monday night, and uh, we saw probably 100 people between the two sides and uh, get thrown out of the game. I, I heard more profanity than I care to hear in a lifetime, and they're yelling at each other, and they're threatening each other, and they're, you know, I mean, it's just, it was ridiculous. I'm going, why did you pay $50 for a ticket to sit in the nosebleed section? and get in a fight. And of course, at the same time, they're walking up and down the aisles going, bear, bear, get your bear, get your bear. I'm going, don't encourage this. Please don't encourage this anymore. And you know, the police are just escorting them out. You, you got to know that, you know, the police just love to be in moments like that, you know, because you can't fix stupid people. <laughs> now let's look at the, what Paul talks about his experience was based exclusively on what God had done. Verse 11 and then we'll drop down to verse 15. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, nor was I taught it, but received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ, verse 15. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Now you need to understand Paul was a contemporary of Christ. He was alive when Christ was walking the earth. He knew about the miracles. He was a Judaizer. He was a Pharisee. He knew about the crucifixion. He knew about the teachings. He knew about all the things that were going on. But the miracles and the teachings did not convince Paul that Jesus was Messiah because Paul had a hard heart. He was hardened by his self-righteousness, a righteousness that, which came by checking all the boxes and keeping the law. 
And by the way, if you look at verse 12 and verse 16, they're two of the best explanations of salvation from God's point of view of any that you'll find in all the Scripture. When you want to know how God views salvation, you'll find it in verse 12 and in verse 16. Notice that Paul says, He set me apart. He called me. He revealed His Son in me. There was no way that Paul could have come to grace had God not revealed himself to him. Paul didn't just wake up one day and say, you know, I think it's time I become a Christian. I've been hearing about this stuff. I think it's time. No, Paul says, God set me apart. God called me. Here was a man who was arrogant, who was zealous for his cause, and he was saved on the Damascus Road by a direct revelation of God to himself. He knew the facts He could quote the first five books of the Old Testament, but he didn't know the Father. And the Father and the Son are interchangeable in these verses because the Father revealed the Son to him, pricked his heart. Salvation, if you want to write this down, is not by education, evaluation, or examination. Salvation is not by education, evaluation, or examination. It is by revelation. From start to finish, salvation is of God. And a lack of understanding of that is the reason we have many false conversions. And Paul describes his conversion. He says, God set me apart even from my mother's womb. He says that God called me just like he called John the Baptist, just like he did Jeremiah. I was, had a pre-birth ordination in calling. God knew what he was going to do with me in my mother's womb. God had a purpose for my life. And by the way, God has a purpose for your life. What you need to do is figure out what God's purpose is. And the only way you're going to figure that out is to ask God to reveal it to you. Why are you here? What's your purpose? Why, Why are you on earth? Why are you breathing? And that purpose is revealed in God that he has a purpose and a plan for your life. In Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 26, God revealed to Paul that his purpose for life, his reason for being born, was to reveal his son in me, is what he says here, and to preach to the Gentiles. It was a revelation he couldn't get over. He he didn't just say a prayer and know a few facts. Paul was saved because he realized he was lost. You're only saved when you realize you're lost. You're not saved because you decide to get saved. Oh, that sounds like a good idea. I'll try that. That's a false conversion. Salvation comes when there's a convicting power of the Holy Spirit that comes into your life and you realize you didn't just hear a sermon, you heard a word from God. You didn't just hear a song, God spoke to your heart. God pricked your heart. You became convicted of sin, that you were a sinner, that there was a gap that separated you from God and you could not fill that gap with good works or keeping the law or joining a church or by being sincere that only Jesus Christ could save you. That's why I know how to pray for the lost and I know how to pray for people that are struggling. You pray for the lost by asking God, not God send somebody to talk to them. You pray for God to reveal himself to them. Get specific. 
God, somehow, somewhere, some way, reveal yourself to that person that you are God, they're not, that they are lost, and that Jesus is the only way that they can be saved. Reveal yourself to them. Show yourself to them in a way that they understand what salvation is. And so let's look at the origin of salvation. It pleased God. It pleased God. That's the origin of it. Do you realize God didn't save you because he wanted you to feel better? Now, folks, if you don't understand this, you'll never enjoy and appreciate the Christian life as God intended it to be. God did not save you for you to feel better. God did not save you to get you out of hell. God did not save you to get you into heaven. God saved you because it pleased him to do it. It's all God. God didn't look down and say, oh, I tell you what, that Michael Cat, he's the nicest young boy. I think I'm just going to save him. Look at how he's, he's got so much potential. Look at what I could do with him. God saved me because it pleased him to do so. And so when I pray for people to be saved, one of the things I pray, Lord, would it please you to save them? I pray that you'd be pleased in showing them salvation. Because it's all about God, because God gets the credit at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end. Nobody's going to stand in heaven and pat somebody else on the back and say, good job. The only one that gets glory in heaven is Jesus, and so if he's the only one getting it in heaven, he should be the only one that gets it on earth. We better practice now. He's the origin of salvation. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could... Save me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. I don't marvel that I love God. I marvel that He loves me. That's the origin of salvation. And I'm afraid that sometimes as we get older and more seasoned, we lose the wonder of it all. That God would save us. And the truth of the matter is, one of the ways the devil trips us up is he kind of nudges us and says, you know, you're so much better than other people. God is so lucky to have you. You're just special to him. Now, your grandmother may have told you that, but God didn't tell you that. God told you you're a wretched sinner deserving hell. And he loved you anyway. He didn't love you because of the way you looked. He didn't love you because of your talent. He didn't love you because of what you could offer to him. He didn't love you because of your money. He didn't love you because of your gifts. He loved you. End of discussion. That's it. That's all it is. The origin of salvation is that it pleased God. Ron Dunn said, I believe God reveals himself to every man. The grace of God that brings salvation has been manifested and revealed to every man. Not every man will respond, but the purpose of God ensures that God will reveal Jesus to every man. Now, have you ever gotten in one of those discussions with somebody? Just think about that quote for a minute. Have you ever gotten in one of those discussions? So, well, what about the heathen in Africa? What about the people in countries that don't have the gospel? 
What about, where was God on 9-11? Where was God in this? And does God really love? And if God's a God of love, why is there so much suffering in the world? Can I tell you something? Listen to me very carefully right now. All eyes right here, don't take notes. Listen to me very carefully. They're asking those questions because they've not been convicted yet that they're lost. When you get convicted, you're lost. The only person you get concerned about in that moment is that I am lost and I am a sinner. And I don't know about anybody else, but I deserve to go to hell. You don't worry about what's happening in a third world country. You don't worry about what happened on 9-11. You don't worry about where was God when this happened and why did God allow that to happen. All of a sudden you are struck with the awareness that I, my sin, put Jesus on a cross and I deserve to be condemned to an eternal hell apart from the grace of God. That's the only thing you think about. Somebody says that to, to you, just walk off say, you know what, you're not ready. Wait, what? What do you mean I'm not ready? You're not ready. What do you mean? Because you're worried about other people. I'm talking to you. I'm not talking to a crowd. I'm talking to you. When you quit worrying about other people, that's when God's got your attention. And when God gets your attention, you'll know it. You won't be now. I wonder if that's God speaking to me. When God gets your attention, you know it. When God reveals himself to you, you know it. You can't wait to come down the aisle. You can't wait to make a profession of faith. You can't wait to ask God to be merciful to you, a sinner. That's the origin of salvation. Because once God shows you your sin, the other questions don't matter anymore. As long as you're asking other questions, the light bulb's not on yet. The origin of salvation, the object of salvation was that Jesus be glorified. It was that Jesus be glorified. I, I get bothered by testimonies. I, I just don't like testimonies that much. I, you know, I grew up in the Jesus movement and everybody gave testimonies. And this is the way most testimonies went. It was about 15, 20 minutes. You know, I was a man, dude, I was bad, dude. I, you know, I did drugs. I did, at first I started with, with marijuana, and then I, then I went to pills, and, and I did uppers, and I did downers, and, and, and then, I, then I did LSD, and then I did cocaine, and, and I was running around with women. And, I was in, and they'll go on for about 20 minutes about that, and then the last 20 seconds, it's like, but Jesus saved me, and I've not, been, I've not been the same ever since. You know what they did? They glorified themselves. They glorified their sinful past. A testimony is to glorify God, not the stinking stuff in your life that you needed to be saved from. Paul said, forgetting the things that are past. Some of us are more impressed with our past life than we are with our present life with Christ. We like to tell people how sorry we were. Hey, you don't have to tell them. Everybody knows you were sorry. Just go ahead and get to Jesus. I mean, I was sorry. You're sorry. We're all sorry. Let's, okay, let's say it together. I'm sorry. Okay, not I'm sorry, sorry. I'm sorry inside sorry. Now let's just get to Jesus and talk about Jesus. People need to see that Jesus changed your life. They don't need to get all the gory details. Just get to the point. And if the point is you, the point is not well taken. If the point is Jesus in you, the point is well taken. You've been set apart. That's the object of salvation. Then the purpose of the revelation. For Paul, it was to preach the gospel. The purpose was Paul was saved and set apart for service in the same moment, at the same time. 
Paul came to Christ and Paul said, I didn't go out and get an opinion poll. I didn't confer with flesh and blood. He went and he got along with God. Look at verse 22. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only after they kept hearing, he who persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Paul did not say they were glorifying me. He said they were glorifying God. We all stop a little too much in front of mirrors. Now, some of us need to stop longer than others, but we all stop a little too much, and, you know, it's just about us. And do people know us? And do they appreciate us? Paul says they heard about what I was doing, and they glorified God. They didn't walk around talking about Paul. They walked around talking about God in Paul. There's a big difference. The set-apart life is a God-glorifying life, and it's that way in three areas. First of all, God is glorified when we fall under conviction of sin. God is glorified when we come under conviction of sin. That's what happened to Paul in Acts chapter 9. He came under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. Now, not all of us will have Damascus Road experiences. But God is glorified when he reveals himself to us and we realize for the first time at the first moment, I'm lost and I'm in need of a Savior. That's your chance to respond. Secondly, God is glorified when people are converted to Christ. God is glorified when people are converted to Christ. The scriptures say the heavens rejoice, the angels rejoice at the conversion of one sinner. God's glorified when people come to saving faith in Christ. Not just that they're convicted of sin, but they come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, God is glorified when we communicate the gospel. Verse 15, he preached to the Gentiles. When we communicate the gospel to the lost world, God is glorified. Verse 22, Paul says, they didn't know me. Let me paraphrase this for you. Paul says, they didn't know me. But when they heard what God had done in me, they knew the devil had lost another one. Now, folks, listen. If I say I'm saved, if I say I've come under conviction of sin, I've been converted to Christ, then there's only one obvious thing to do. Communicate the gospel. Well, good. That's because you're a preacher. No, that's because I'm a Christian. I'm to communicate the gospel. That's what I'm supposed to do. The Great Commission applies to everybody, not just to the apostles or preachers or evangelists or missionaries. It applies to all of us. Can, can I tell you something? The only thing that you are going to do on earth, as far as Christ is concerned, the only thing you're going to do on earth that you can't do in heaven is witness you're going to serve God. You're going to worship God. You're going to be in the presence of God. But the one thing you can't do in heaven is witness. You've got this life, this moment, this opportunity, this time, this season to share your faith. And if I've been convicted of sin and I've been converted to Christ, then I am to communicate the gospel. My conversion does not allow me to sit soaking sour. My conversion calls me to share good news. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Catt. 
For more information about Sherwood, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. Thanks for listening and join us next week for another podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church.